Once again, to Core Ideas, paleo-limnology podcast where we delve into all things like sediments. And as always, we are your co-hosts, myself, Adam Jezorski. And Josh Thienpont. Thanks for coming back and checking out the episode today. So what do you want to talk to talk about today, Josh? Uh, I don't know. Uh, pop culture, maybe. Something, things we see in the news, but centered around paleo-limnology? I was going to say, this is not a pop culture podcast. Well, it's our podcast. Can yeah. do anything we want. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, so bring it back to paleo. We're just so it's kind of a funny thing. Um, as we were researching this episode, or thinking about researching this episode, we realized we're yeah, research is about, research is a, maybe a strong word. <laughs> I, I did air quotes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> um. We were like, oh, paleo in the media, public perception of paleo. That'd be a great, you know, touchstone to launch into a discussion um, of how the science is perceived, you know, among the quote-unquote late people. And then started doing a little Googling and realized that, yeah, if you're going back into like the early 70s of the emergence of acid rain, you know, you're not really going to find a whole lot of newspaper articles on the internet. What you really need to do is hit the libraries and start doing some digging into the microfilm records. Yeah. But unfortunately, Ooh. all the libraries are closed. Yeah. So, so should we talk about something else? No. We'll Let's swing just it. continue. Yeah. yeah, we'll just wing it. Okay. So pretty much I, I'm as prepared for this topic as any other we would we would throw in at this late of a of a juncture. So let's just talk about uh paleolimnology in the news. Sort of from our recollection of it. <laughs> in general, hearsay and half-remembered stories that we may have been told once while kind of listening. Yeah, exactly. Or right. things we heard around the coffee table uh, from John Small, who lived all these moments. <laughs> or <laughs> things from his book. <laughs> um, many of them, yeah. Was he a contemporary of Da Vinci? Uh, not to my knowledge. Okay. If, if so... <laughs> Boy, he looks great. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so the idea would be that we we're working from a general question of when would paleo as a topic have been first introduced to the, the general public? And um, I think in any specific way or like the modern conception of paleo really would be tied in closely with acid rain um, as, you know, being the science that helped nail down the early questions of what the causes of acid rain were. You know, and even to a level of like, you know, how many lakes are naturally acidic, you know, yeah. by pulling up some baseline, uh, uh, you know, baseline, like the general baseline questions we were talking about a couple of episodes ago when, uh, when Jenny joined us. So that would put it into the 1970s, 1980s is when uh, acid rain really emerged into the public consciousness. But in terms of the... Uh, concepts of uh natural archives um can go back further than that oh yeah for sure and the idea that records of some sort build up over time whether they be lake sediments uh probably came around a little bit later as it did for studying these things for the science of using lake sediments 
not as we've talked about a few times, not a, a really new science, but the general acceptance and broad application of it is fairly recent. Uh, the earliest of these records would probably have been tree rings would be my guess. The first uh, idea that many people have to realize that there are natural archives out there, or maybe they don't realize them. They're just cool things to look at. But the concept of the fact that trees had this annual growth laminations is from the ancient, you know, from the Greek time periods that was recognized. And I think uh, at least again, as far as our uh, extensive knowledge uh, and research on Wikipedia suggests that uh, it was Da Vinci or someone around that time period. I'm sure a lot of things get uh, suggested that Da Vinci came up with them. Who realized, though, that there was some correlation between the size of the ring width and some sort of meteorological phenomena like the grow, the weather and the temperature and precipitation? Yeah, so that would put the whole idea of you know biological records keeping track of good years versus less good years you know be at least at a bare minimum you know 400 plus years old yeah for sure a lot earlier than uh anyone got out there and collected any lake sediment records uh, and then moving forward i think uh, as we move into the modern era, the first of these kind of archives that people probably really uh, would have seen in the news, like newspapers, probably would have been ice cores would be my guess, which were first collected in the 50s, uh, the, the mid 50s. Uh, and that would have been a completely different thing because now you have to go and, you know, not just cut down a tree and look at the rings, but you have to drill a core into the ice cap in order to pull some of these things out. Like an expedition with purpose. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're going out specifically to, you know. The center of Greenland to, to pull this massive record of ice. And that kind of time would uh, be concurrent with um, the development of radiocarbon dating as a technique. Again, mm -hmm. in the, I think, um, I it would have been a little bit earlier than that, been in the 40s, but I believe like the, we have to go back and check our dating episode. So yeah. the difference between when it was developed versus when uh, the developer got the Nobel Prize for it. Yeah. It was, in, I think, in, in the early 50s. Yeah, but anyway, it really took off at that time period. So, yeah. And then jumping ahead to, okay, so these were techniques that people or that were used scientifically and would have been permeating into the public consciousness but in terms of public consciousness and the environment, then 1962 is kind of a watershed moment with the publication of Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, which is a book that in many ways launched the environmental movement in the West. Yeah. And yeah, and, and so many things would take up. So if you were, you know, tracking a single idea of everyone thinking about the environment, that would have just sent it off into so many different locations and you know people who had not thought about these things before would have been exposed to these ideas for the first time in all sorts of different media tv probably not as much but a lot of print media that would have been very common to see and then there would have been the like the uh referencing of all sorts of environmental issues whether they be ones that paleo has a ability to track or not uh that would have been referencing this kind of idea the environmentalism yeah and so it's a bit of an aside but so we can't really access libraries but i kind of remembered seeing a long time ago from uh um 
uh, what Google calls their Ngram viewer, which was yeah, which I had never heard of this until uh, today. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this dates back, uh, kind of peters out after 2008, but there's a period of time when Google was trying to uh, digitize everything, and they had um, old books and old libraries, and they were automating like page turning and doing uh, optical character recognition of jillions and jillions of books. And they had a database and they threw up on the internet. You could search to see the general, um, uh, I don't know, you know, I have no idea what the actual measurements are, but they put a percent on, but some like fraction of books to get an idea of when phrases popped into print media, as we're talking about. And their database kind of runs out of 2008 because I think there was all kinds of legal issues with it in terms of copyright and i have no idea but anyway they stopped doing you, it you don't think it's a coincidence that that's the year that pollution of lakes and rivers a paleo environmental perspective the second edition came out that they just stopped they're like that's it i was We've a got cease it all. and desist yeah it was uh, issued oh i was thinking more that no like, we've done it we've got all the books we need now the second edition <laughs> of john small's book is out it's no, been a general de stopped. decline in everything since then yeah, yeah. I, I could buy into that cool but anyway, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. But anyway, I was like, okay, I'll uh, I'll throw paleolimnology into this archive of all print media that Google had access to. I have no idea what the volume is. And it's like, yeah, it's a very small, low line that doesn't seem to change very much. So paleolimnology itself is not a particularly common phrase. So then uh, I went, okay, let's throw in acid rain. And it seems to pop up in the 70s, uh, peak in the early 1990s, then drop off. It's, it's in many ways, it's viewed as one of the good news environmental stories. It worked. Eutrophication uh, has an earlier pop-up, which seems to really coincide with um, uh, the mid-60s, again, tying into Silent Springs release um, and has remained steady. And all steady. the changes that would have been going on in the Great Lakes. And yeah, mm. makes sense and, that it's a little okay. earlier. Rivers it's catching cool on fire, those yeah. kind of things. Um, and then climate change is just, you know, a bit later than both of those, but has a meteoric rise, uh, to the present day. And then, and if uh, this is percentage wise, not to, sorry to inter keep interrupting you, but as a percentage, if we're thinking, and you can go and have a look at these, but climate change is, what would you say? Like the peak, the climate change, which has continued to rise to now and hasn't had a, a drop off as you might expect is what, maybe four times higher than the acid rain peak. Uh, that occurred in the in 1992, 1993. So it's really interesting to see this. And I thought, you know, a really good way to calibrate it was, uh, so we've got paleolimnology in there, acid rain, eutrophication, climate change being the highest. And then when you throw the term sex in there too, um, basically everything else becomes a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Well, it tells you about the, uh, the state of print media. Have the finger on the pulse. <laughs> Of yeah. what society cares about. But anyway, so that was, uh, you know, along the side, just go, okay, this is kind of interesting that, yes, you can track uh, really the emergence of environmental concerns, um, you know, in a print sense, really to the 60s. Yeah. And the big, and the early ones would be eutrophication with like the uh, fertilization of the Great Lakes and like the quote unquote death of Lake Erie. Um, and then acid rain being a bit later and climate change being later still. Yeah, no, it's an interesting, uh, tool to, uh, to look at some of these things. It'd be interesting to toss, not ones that are paleo related, but just other environmental, uh, 
problems in there, like tossing DDT or things like that, you know, for PCBs, that kind of thing that would have been directly related to the silent spring, um, era and the ideas behind them and just see how they, uh, how they rise and fall. Cause I would imagine that you would get a similar kind of, uh, profile and it's neat to see the ones that haven't, you know, we haven't solved that problem yet. And actually the eutrophication one, if we keep kind of playing with these things, um, had, does have a, a, an uptick in the latter part of the record. It's, it's small, but, uh, the idea that we may be re-eutrophying some of the Great Lakes uh, after, not to say that they were solved, the problem, but uh, as it became less of a concern as we removed kind of phosphorus detergents from common use, uh, and there may be an uptick uh, as that continues to be a, a concern in the environment. So it's neat to see the trends. Yeah, and just clicking DDT in there. Um, no, I... It's interesting that it's higher than any of the others uh, by an order of magnitude and, and peaks in the early 70s hmm. and then has declined since then. So Kind of like the the profile of DDT in most, uh, yeah. in most environmental records, so that's neat. Bringing this back to paleo, um, I don't know. How, how, what do you want to talk about now? Um. Well, I guess the interesting thing to to continue talking about is the idea that so we talked. I guess we've now hinted at the role that paleo, so where paleo came into uh, addressing these issues, is that paleo had some applications that were uh, brought in during the eutrophication sort of uh, debates or the phosphorus wars, however you want to uh, refer to them. But a lot of the um, data on how we were impacting uh, nutrient status in lakes was more modern limnological. So I'm thinking of obviously the ELA experiments of Schindler and that kind of thing. So the the, the real curtain, yeah, the, the, cla- the classic curtain. classic stuff. Um, whereas with acid rain, it sort of becomes paleo, right? Paleo is that uh, tool that. Uh, leads to the movement uh, in an environmental sense of trying to abate these measures and you go get legislation passed that is going to allow for uh, change in these perspectives. And I think as we move beyond that framework, so from acid rain into more ongoing debates or environmental problems that haven't, I don't want to say been solved, but you know what I mean, been, uh, are no longer top of mind. Yeah. Are no longer top of mind. And are also, there's not a question. No, if, if there's, um, uh, if we were to say that there's no movement on acid rain, it's not because there's not enough evidence. We don't know what the problem is. That's more of a political issue. Uh, as you move beyond that, paleo becomes really a critical um, component of solving a lot of or understanding a lot of the more topical environmental problems that we see. So climate change, paleo has been used um, throughout that debate and, and the ongoing collection of scientific data about the impact of humans on temperature records and all the associated environmental changes. If we think about, from a Canadian context, a huge topic that we often uh, are thinking about is the impact of mining activities, in particular bitumen sands extraction, so oil sands, tar sands, however you want to refer to it, uh, and 
being able to use paleo records has been critical throughout that time period. Yeah. Tracking, you know, how far, what, what baselines would be, how far stuff is being transported from the actual facilities, um, baseline, like, yeah, like, you know, this is something that you see in the papers on a relative, you know, as much as you see any particular science story, uh, repeated in the papers, but just like various, um, uh, water quality studies of the Athabasca river, for example, is one that I think has kind of come up, um, multiple times in the last couple of years as, as a, uh, um, story downstream of, uh, the, uh, oil sands production facilities. Yeah. And I wonder if the reason for that is that many of these, um, environmental problems, whether they're climate change or uh, pollution, uh, are occurring not in, you know, the, the populated areas of New York state, but in more remote locations or more broadly distributed. So climate change is impacting everywhere, obviously. And, you know, there was, if there was no one monitoring lakes in Adirondack Park in New York, there was nobody monitoring lakes in uh, the Arctic ever. Uh, and there's nobody monitoring ecosystems prior to the onset of oil sands in northern Alberta because there was no reason to be up there. Uh, so we really need this perspective that paleo can provide. There's also the context of like far away from many eyes, like not saying no one lives up there, but comparing the impetus to make these changes is like when, whether it's the Ohio River or the Detroit River caught on fire, you know, lots of people saw that and were like, holy moly, this something has gone seriously, seriously wrong. Yeah. Whereas, you know, how many thousands of kilometers? Uh, is yeah, it's it out from of sight, out of mind. Yeah, New York City to the Athabasca River, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and also when activities began in those areas, uh, there probably wasn't as much uh, oversight and regulation for ongoing monitoring in advance of that. We know that for the oil sands is a particular example. The early days, there was very little environmental monitoring in Alberta. And even that was uh, ad hoc and not necessarily the most rigorous um, work that had been done. So it needed to be, again, use that paleo perspective to find what the conditions were before because mining had probably been going on for 10 or 15 years before anyone started really uh, digging into what the impacts of that might have been. Which makes, yeah. <clears throat> so the modern and direct monitoring, you have no baseline. Yeah. Exactly. Which is a common common thing, you know, like, oh, yeah. you know, when anything is remote being set up, mine or whatever, the first step is not often to go, oh, let's, let's, you know, look at all the areas downstream and see what things are like. It's like, let's begin production. Sure. Yeah. Or, and it, it certainly wasn't when, you know, even, I don't know, I can't remember the exact time period that oil sands really started blooming uh, in terms of the extraction, but it hasn't been 100 be, years, you know. It's, no, I mean the 60s and 70s. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in the 60s, things were quite dif different. Uh, you know, it all ties into the Silent Spring kind of era and the fact that there, you know, just wasn't as much um, attention put on the impacts of these things. It was really about getting... Uh, these more economically feasible 
uh, operations off the ground. If you move forward, I think we've, we're probably doing a better job on that. So we've both worked a little bit uh, with some data that were collected by uh, or related to diamond mining in the Northwest Territories. And as part of establishing those operations, which occurred in the early 2000s, um, it was required that they had all of this pre-impact monitoring data so much so that it's an it's a nightmare to work with the data there's so much material there and that that uh cumulative impacts or aquatic uh, effects monitoring data would stretch before so there was some baseline information and then afterwards would continue throughout the history of the uh the actual operation and that changed in only 30 years to be able to see that kind of activity occurring. And, and that's a, obviously a really useful thing. Doesn't mean you can't we use paleo in those locations. We That's one of the reasons we were involved. Um, but it does give you something sometimes to Sometimes you want to. more than two or three years oh, of pre absolutely. data. And that's that's exactly what uh, what we kind of decided and, and realized in that perspective. But it does. it is interesting to see how it changes. Yeah. Um, and then I think an interesting thing to touch on is, um, if we're talking about in the general media, is how political, how politically charged all sorts of environmental topics became. And in many cases, the message, messaging of scientists um, getting drowned out by cheerleaders for team A versus team B, depending on what country you're in or what, you know, what the political system is. Um, and everything becoming very emotionally charged. And then you having scientists saying, Hey, no, I I know what's going on here. Uh, Look at this graph. Yeah. We do like graphs. (laughs) I do like graphs. And, um, and this reminded me of, I saw a, um, an episode of The Agenda a good couple of months ago, and there was a climate scientist named Kate Marvel on it talking, and she had a, a very interesting spiel on it that, you know, in many of these cases where it is heavily politically charged, that the facts are not enough to change people's minds. It's like, it's, that is not a role that scientists fit well into because, yeah. you know, when minds are set, the thing that will persuade someone from changing their opinion of is something bad versus not bad or something allowed to continue versus not allowed to continue or whatever it should be. Something is something, whether something needs to be worried about or not, it's not going to be another graph or another (laughs) equation or extending a trend by one data point that will tip the scales. And, um, no, that's a a real good point. And, uh, it definitely struck with me and, um, and then, you know, kind of, kind of floats into then the Hollywood presentation of scientists and depends really on what team that particular scientist is in. If they're a uh, evil looking nerd with a coat or a really, uh, you know, hip person that got their PhD at what looks like to be the age of 22 yeah, and is already a world leading scientist in coolness. Yeah. That, that's, uh, that should be its own episode. I think just, I mean, not a paleo, maybe it stretches beyond the paleo limnology focus of this, but I love, this uh, topic. I think it's a, an interesting one for all of those reasons we were just talking about. How it is that scientists uh, show up in movies, 
and I don't know that I've ever seen a paleolimnologist in a movie, but it is amazing that they run the gamut from the, you know, the, the nerd who looks like they have never been outside, <laughs> you know, with the glasses that are an inch thick through to, you know, I don't know. Fresh uh, off the runway, defended their thesis. Yeah. Or, uh, surfing, you know, right off the beach, uh, just pulled off the wetsuit and then ran into the lab to, uh, to answer that problem. Uh, and everything in between. Yeah. Being an ex world expert in your field while also surfing 16 hours a day. Hey, you got to do it. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> there's so many examples along that way. I think my favorite one is, uh, uh, the day after tomorrow with, uh, um, was it Dennis Quaid? I think Dennis Quaid. That sounds right. I've, I've never actually seen that one, but you, oh, you, well, you must, before. my friend, any movie that has a glaciologist, that's gotta be the closest to paleolimnologist in, oh, yeah. uh, in the star. It's pretty role. safe that, you know, outside of newsreels, I don't think there's been any, uh, paleolimnologists in film per se no probably not not yet at least um but yeah but do you think that does a good job like do you think that i i don't uh so the day after tomorrow being one climate change movie and kind of one of the early sort of apocalyptic action kind of movies around climate change and now there's lots and lots of documentaries obviously and things like that but do you think that kind of portrayal of scientific data is more effective even if it's wrong and you know even if the science is not sound in every way it is a dramatization of movie uh personally i would go um no nah, i think it does more harm than good yeah because it makes it you know as um you know unrealistic as being invaded by giant robots that turn into cars and yep. it gets filed away in the same general category of like when you see the movie is like you're just eating breakfast and it's like oh no a glacier just rolled over washington dc crap yeah. who could have seen that coming and then it just kind of feeds into the the glaciologists <laughs> could have seen that coming that's the whole point of the movie <laughs> but I'm, I'm, lots of people could have seen that coming <laughs> okay fair enough yeah <clears throat> Um, so maybe the documentary style of, of, so there's somewhere in between, not just reams of graphs, uh, on the news that people, people's eyes are glazed over, but also not the, uh, glacier and massive tsunamis wiping out the, uh, Statue of Liberty. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I just don't think general, you know, box office, feature films, Hollywood, Bollywood, whatever, whatever you, that general concept is where you're going to change anyone's minds on, uh, um, on whether or not, uh, global climate change is a problem or not. Right. So it comes back to what we started this little diver digression on is that you're on team A or team B and the data are not going to change your opinion of that. Uh, yeah. And I don't know what will, well, I, I definitely don't think watching a movie will sway one way to that. And that's like, I think in many ways, um, what the, the problem is because it has become, I'm on team A and this yeah. is my list of beliefs and climate change being, uh, fake is on or a global hoax, um, run by the Illuminati, which we covered last time. And there are no handshakes no. that will say, Hey, I'm a, a climate change scientist. Give me lots and lots of grant fundings to say that 
what everyone else is saying is true. Um, and, uh, and versus team B. And I don't know where those, uh, where that change will come from or whether it'll come in many ways. I'm like, you know, despair a little bit on, on this thing because is it just a case of boiling frog syndrome? Will the minds be changed? Who knows? Um, in time, but, or they are, but will but it's very much of the transition from a general abstract. This, this is, this graph is problematic to look at versus, you know, far north of Canada, permafrost melting. It's like, you know, tree lines are totally broken. Buildings are falling over, you know, becomes a bit of a weight of evidence. Yeah. And so how, how far, how close to a tipping point do you have to get and will, will it happen in time? And I don't know. Yeah. Well, no one, yeah. But I didn't the, expect the, media, you, the correct answer. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, but, I, but the media plays a role in all of this is, is kind of where I'm going. Like we're kind of talking in circles a little bit and digressing from, you know, microfiche studies to cool PhD scientists in, in movies, skateboarding through hallways of glass, <laughs> to the library, glass filled <laughs> halls. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, 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 but the media has played a big role in all of these topics because the various, because they become politicized and forces are marshaled on various, you know, behind various issues, whether it's grassroots or astroturf. Yeah. This isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, the, uh, the link to the acid rain debates and the, the, you know, right at the top Reagan, president Reagan, uh, despairing that, you know, this was the natural condition and trees produced more pollution than, uh, than factories and all of those kind of things like that. This isn't a new topic. This is something that's been, um, you know, going on for a long time and, and earlier than that, of, of course, as well. And I guess as the scientist component, many of the people listening probably are the, are in that, you know, probably all of them, let's not kid ourselves, uh, <laughs> are in that vein, um, what more can you do? We can't change people's mind directly. And in the end, it's about data and producing data that are interesting and sound and to inform decision makers. Yeah, exactly. Putting together the media briefs or whatever, you know, if you have a strong following on social media or Twitter or whatever, they might get picked up and uh, then they get into the news and, and that's kind of where we are. And some people do a lot of that and others do a little bit. Uh, and that both are fine. Both are great if that's how you uh, approach that. But that's really the role to play there. This has been a pretty massive tangent. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting though. Like, cause yeah. it is linked. Oh yeah, it is. It's totally like popular representation. And then I guess this is a problem of environmental science, I guess. I guess there's not a whole lot of popular representation of paleolimnology. Or, well, I guess we don't know that without actually hitting the yeah. film, but it was way down on the angry. Oh, graph. yeah, for sure. I mean, if you think of uh, paleolimnological study, even recent ones where we could access that Google uh, news a little bit more significantly compared to all of the other environmental science type of work out there, 
it's it's a part of it, but it's not an enormous part. It's certainly not making up the bulk of the environmental science uh, research out there. But I would bet, you know, so what you're saying I, is we're a niche. We're not mainstream. Eh, I don't. I don't want to say that so much. Um, I think many individual sciences sciences are making up the bulk of the work. Um, and I would I would imagine that of stories that get a lot of pickup. Um, Paleo ones probably hit above their weight in terms of the number of them that are out there, uh, but it's still always going to be a small part. As we're I'm looking at the list of current topical stuff that Paleo um, uh, can inform and get general uh, media representation within. Obviously, we spend a lot of time talking about climate change is the big one. Um, uh, oil extraction, particularly within Canada, is a, uh, a big one. Uh, one that has emerged, um, at least as an environmental issue. I'm not sure if there's a huge amount of paleo stuff yet, but paleo seems to be going to go hand in hand with a lot of studies. Would be the impacts of road salt. That is one that seems to have really exploded into public consciousness over the last five years or so. Absolutely. It is amazing how much uh, work and and then popular uh, recognition in the everyday media and and just even to talking to people uh, there is about how much salt we put down on the roads in cold places where we have to do that again. Yeah. So I guess for the our international listenership, it might be <laughs> unfamiliar with what even road salt is in areas where you're dealing with a lot of snow in the winter. Uh, one of the um, or really more, it's it's really cold temperatures where ice builds up on the road which is quite a problem for driving your car uh basically uh rock salt is uh um laid down on the roads and very large quantities as a means of uh um uh depressing the freezing point of the of the ice yeah yeah and uh basically improving road conditions um and this is done in like you know we're talking dump trucks driving down the highway uh, and spreading it out and so tons and tons and tons and tons of oh, this yeah. and, if you're um, driving behind one of those things it's like being in a meteor shower when it hits your car it's unbelievable yeah. how much they put down and um you know there are definitely lake records where you can see this uh taking off in the again going back to the 50s and 60s and um you know having a definite effect on aquatic life um, and, you know, change, changing the conductivity of the water and the sediments and, um, and just people have been studying this for quite some time, but really in newspapers and magazine articles and stuff, this seems to be something that has really caught on. You're just like, what, what drives that? I have no idea in terms of when a tipping point is reached in terms of the general public latching yeah. onto an issue. And be, going, yes, I want to know more about this. Yeah, I think this will be an interesting one to see if we could uh, fast forward 20, 30 years and see how this uh, plays out in terms of the trajectory. Is this one of those issues that's fairly, I don't want to say simple again, but you know, straightforward in terms of understanding and will it die down? Or is this going to be an ongoing concern uh, that uh, will be around for quite a long time? It'd be interesting to see. Yes, it comes down in like how it's addressed. If it's addressed, you know, it's one thing that, um, you know, the alarm bells are being rung 
and then you're seeing some exploratory analysis. Like, what are the alternatives? Yeah, beet well, juice is particularly hard to spray all over the road yeah, in large that's, quantities. That's the one that seems to always come up in terms of a, you know, I guess part of the selling the article would be like beet juice would be an alternative. But are we going to, you know, you can't really mine beet juice. Like <laughs> the, uh, Massive industrial quantities that are uh, that are required. It's like I planted fair. my beets this morning, so okay. uh, I, I've got All two right, rows so you, that I can contribute to the cause. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna t- you're gonna sort out uh, your hometown now. Yeah, just, no, just the sidewalk in front of the house. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that's an interesting one. And then also, what else was on this? Oh, uh, algal blooms, and so that is one that ties back into climate change, but. More, more and more, uh, you know, seems to be getting a lot of uh, a lot of attention. I think that's an interesting one, and one that uh, again we can kind of say paleo is a, a useful tool for. Not that it's not useful for all of them, but uh, cyano or um, algal blooms, harmful algal blooms, are interesting in that they tie together a couple of these environmental concerns on their own. They're not a, a you know the problem it's the over fertilization combined with the climate change and how those are occurring synergistically antagonistically whatever it is so this is a good uh, reason where paleo can be really important moving forward with this one because we can track them as we've talked about before but two it it can be kind of uh, helpful to try and disentangle those drivers um, in order to understand what's going on and um this gets a lot of, I guess, media representation due to the fact that it's uh, very visual. You know, we're not talking a slow burn effect on the surface. You get like a big, huge bloom when you want to go swimming that smells terrible. You know, yeah, people making, are concerned you know, about you know letting the dog get in the water, yeah, poisoning, poisoning pets. You know, um, you know fish kills that beach, are often of associated you know, with it's it. Like, yeah. Um, concerns regarding to are these becoming more frequent? You know, what what are the long term impacts on property values? And so, uh, you know, I think and, this and, is one. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say this is one of those environmental thing uh, issues where, um, all of a sudden, it's, you know, there's a direct impact, monetary impact, as opposed to a, you know the impacts being wrapped up into an externality. Yeah, if you know the millionaires and billionaires are probably feeling this more keenly than the plebs, so sure. uh, um, it's uh, um, you know rockets to the forefront of uh, media concern. Yep, and research dollars and all of those things that come along with that. Um, and then it's an, uh, the last thing maybe about why paleo fits really nicely here, and you know, will be is and will be continued. Uh, important in this story is the fact that the window that we have on a lot of these ecosystems is really short and it's possible that there have been long-term algal blooms going on you know in the past that uh, were just unnoticed for whatever reason no one was on those lakes no one cared about those things it's not like uh PCBs, where we know humans created those things these are living biological phenomena that uh, could have had huge variation in how they impact the ecosystem and just because they're occurring now may not be you know may not be that 
unique. It just is our perspective on it. There's a bit of an irony there. If you roll it back to acid rain and the flip, the flip side of like the concern when being like, these lakes are acidic. And then there's a pushback of, uh, these lakes, uh, have always been acidic yep. and the payload comes in and goes, no, uh, they were yeah. not, they acidified in the fifties. And then in a bloom story, you have potentially have, um, Oh, these blooms are terrible. Do something about it. They're new. And payload comes along and goes, no, not necessarily. We've got lots of bloom records going back wherever for this particular lake and wherever. And, uh, I just, uh, I don't know. There's a, so it is a bizarre symmetry to it all. Yeah. yeah. Hey, that's what the if data that's, show. If that's, the it, if that's the way it shakes out. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, it is interesting um, though. Um, and I don't know if we got in. Can you think of anything else that we throw onto the list? Like, I mean, there's lots of other environments, like invasive species and stuff like that. That paleo itself is not like going to be able to the address. Forefront. Under, yeah. yeah, like that's not going to be where microplastics where the answers are necessarily found. Microplastics are all over the news as well at the moment. Even more recent than road salt, I would argue that they really are getting picked up. Um, and there's a paleo story to be had there for sure. A lot of where we are, maybe we're just not there yet in any great number. A lot of now is just surveying the landscape and where we've you know, becoming to realize we find these absolutely everywhere that we look uh, in every organism and every environment almost. Uh, and then the question will be methodologically, it's a very challenging um, uh, environmental uh concern to study because of the cleanliness that's required for not contaminating them. I suspect we'll see more and more archives kind of looking at that in the past too. But other than that, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, many more I'm sure will come forward. So yeah, so really, you know, when we looked at a Hollywood representation of a paleomnologist, they'll be talking about climate change, road salt, cyanobacterial blooms, or acid rain. Yep. That's a, I'd watch that movie. <laughs> or all of them. They're a leading expert in all of them at the same time. That, that's often the way it is. There's this one expert. It's not like, yeah, I, I focus on this very small aspect of the science. And here's my colleague who does that. No, no, they do everything. <laughs> we talked about this earlier and, and you went and looked it up. And then just, again, uh, popular mediums is going more into a comedy sense. I guess it's like several years removed now or at least like 10 years removed from it but i still remember uh when the journal of paleolimnology was called out by the colbert colbert report yeah that's that has to be like paleolimnology's most famous moment you would think almost (laughs) in the popular media because that show was very popular it was Uh, huge like i mean he took over uh Letterman spot now. Yeah, exactly. And it's still, obviously, you know, it's a different story, a different way he plays the character, not not his former character. Um, but the Journal of Paleolimnology was on the, what was it called? On Notice, the board. Yes. Uh, so there's like that, I think there were 10 things that were on notice for uh, a variety of different infractions, but effectively pissing off Colbert's character. In some way. So bears were always at the top. And why, why was the Journal of Paleoenology on this list? So it all stems from an article that was published in 2006 uh, by a team of researchers 
at Florida State University and then a, some institutes in Israel. Uh, and the title of the uh, article, I don't remember the exact wording of it, but was some idea that, and the media picked up on this part, that Jesus wouldn't have been walking on water. He would have been walking on ice. Uh, so the biblical story in the New Testament of Jesus walking on water probably uh, would have been because of the climate at the time, it was a paleoclimate reconstruction, would have been on ice because it was colder in the Sea of Galilee, or I think, I can't remember, it has a different name, Lake Kinemrit, I probably said it wrong, uh, is what they call it in Israel. Um, at that time period, it was colder. Based on the conditions and circulation, there would have been um, uh, ice building up in, in the inlets of the, of the lake. That's, that's one, you know, uh, one way to poke the bear. Eventually, we can talk about like titles to give your paper in order oh, to get yeah. people to read them. Uh, that could have very easily been, uh, you know, long-term trends in lake whatever over the past 2,000 years. And no one would have picked up on it. And that probably was the title of the paper. I, would, I didn't <laughs> look up the exact article, just some of the news coverage of it. Um, but if that's the title of your press release, just mwah. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> you know, you know, this one's going to the Guardian, which was where the article I read or wherever. Um, and, uh, but, a, you know, yeah. a good example of paleoclimate reconstructions and, and inferences about previous conditions. Uh, but what a great way to sell it. Pissing off one of the one of the teams. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um. And as we kind of, uh, well, I guess, you know, move on into the anecdotal rambling section of the podcast, and I guess, unlike most episodes, this whole episode has really been anecdotal rambling, but um, have you had any experiences yourself with um, your work being represented in the popular media in any, any shape or form, or misrepresented in the popular media in any shape or form, or vice versa? Uh, well, I've, I've had some of my work kind of featured in media releases. Uh, I don't think any of it's been misrepresented. They, they tend to be, uh, they tend to have all been articles that were written by science writers. So, you know, people at the Canadian press who uh, specialize in that or spe specific, uh, news, um, news agencies, whatever. So their science team. So I think they were all done quite well. Uh, the only one I can think of that was like a strange one is I did a live radio interview with a, for one of our studies that the, the, so the radio station was in Calgary, uh, which is in Alberta, one of the other provinces in Canada. And the person was very clearly a climate denier, uh, <laughs> the, the host. I probably should have guessed that given that it was in Calgary. <laughs> um, and so it was a very different like uh, interview compared to what I had done for the other interviews for the paper. Uh, so it, w it was more of a discussion of some of the things we've talked about today than, uh, than otherwise. So that would be my one thing that went off the rails a bit. Okay. Um, I think my main, my main experiences have come from a paper a while ago that was looking at the legacy of acid rain um, that got picked up in the general media um, and, uh, two things came to mind that kind of like, so I was fairly early in my PhD studies at the time. 
Um, and uh, so the paper made a bit of a splash um, and made it to the pre, I guess, the, like the talking to a producer on the CB show Quirks and Quarks about potentially including it in their show, which is like a uh, um, a weekly science show on the national broadcaster here, and they cover all kinds of science. And so it was like an interview to just, oh, we saw your press release, we're interested in talking to you about this. And then I gave him the spiel. The spiel wasn't very well rehearsed at that. And the main takeaway, they eventually declined to run with it. But the main quote that stuck with me from the uh, from the producer was something to the effect of, yeah, okay, if we do run with this, you're going to have to think of other things to say than base cation decline. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to describe it in some other way. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. And, and, and uh, it's funny, I did a couple of uh, um, interviews at the time for that, uh, for uh, a couple of papers. And uh, it caused me to this day, because the Quirks and Quarks one was the very first one. And so by the time I was at like number six or seven, it might have been polished enough to get over that initial hump at least. But it was just, that it was not the one to, to like be getting the the spiel into a couple of succinct sentences before you'd rehearsed it a bit. Yeah. That's, yeah. it's unfortunate too. Cause that's like one of the bucket list things for many Canadian uh, scientists is to get the story on, on quirks and quirks. Cause they're a little bit longer form. Uh, and so they're quite good stories. That's, that's unfortunate, but so, you know, what can you so do? We'll never know, but that, that was one. Yeah. It might've just been a really busy week for, yeah. for science. Or, too. But anyway, like just that whole, but that, you know, phrase, of just, this makes a lot of sense to you. You need to repackage this in order to make it uh, digestible for someone who is not immersed in it as you may or may as you may be today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we could have a whole episode on on that transition because it really is a oh, it is one that can only be practiced. And I think of it actually um, related a lot to teaching in the same way, like. Because you understand it in these words does not mean that anyone else will. And I think about that with my undergrad teaching all the time. Yeah. And then a second thing that fell out of that same paper was wading into the comment sections of a couple of newspaper oh, stories about no, the article. And, you know, of course, it's an environmental issue, uh, it's dealing with acid rain um, and the legacy. So, yes, acid rain. In many ways, it's improved, but there's a legacy left within the uh, aquatic environments due to decades of high sulfate emissions. Um, but Doesn't anyway, base just cation decline. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> is all about base cation decline. There's literally no other way to describe it. But anyway, um, but then just seeing the uh, arguments in the comment sections of I don't remember what it was. It might have been like the Globe and Mail or yeah. National Newspaper or something like that. Uh, and just the vitriol being thrown between commenters and you know, it's always there, but just like, just leave the comments alone. And because I had some connection to this particular story, I went through hundreds of them and, uh, um, just one that has stuck with me to this day in terms of just the misguidedness. So, you know, people yelling at each other for whatever reason, totally political. And then, um, one quote was something to the effect of, and this is just another example of those so-called PhD students just getting rich on the teats of a society that has nothing better to spend their money on. And I was like, 
It's like, yes, that is my reality. That is how I yeah. made my first million. That's right. Yeah. Oh, well. And yeah, so, there's someone you're never going to change their opinion. <laughs> I've got another graph, though. Yeah, was, I know. If only he'd seen the supplemental information for the paper. Might have done it. I doubt it somehow, though. Yeah, so-called. What is so-called PhD students supposed to I mean? Even. I have no idea. I'm, uh, it's probably no longer a direct quote. It's been like uh, so permutating my brain for a long time. You get the idea. But yeah, uh, no, the, the comment section on on articles is a is a dark, dark place. Whatever that article is, I think it's probably only gotten worse. Uh, but it, it's hard not to delve into. I've done that for a couple of stories uh, related to my own work and and waded into the cesspool that is the article, uh, the comments. So waded in and. Just looking or oh, waited no, no. in just, and yeah, responded? Yeah. Oh, just looked. Oh, no, no. I'm, okay. I'm not there to play. No. <laughs> no. Because, no, yeah. Could get but there are people who fast. would do that. Like, there are, there definitely are academics who, uh, you know, f- from a point of clarifying, at least for the people, not the people who are never going to be convinced, uh, but would wait into that or, or do maybe more on uh, social media. And yeah, that's, that's, this, this would be. I, like I very much appreciate those people, but that's not my style. Yeah. Oh, and mine either. And this is like the. Pre- I, I can't imagine. Well, I guess a lot of newspapers have t- even taken their comment sections away. And they have. Whole, yeah, very much. Um, uh, I guess subset of discourse has moved into the social media space. I, I would say, like, very much so. That's the case. Like CBC, the Canadian broadcaster I was talking about that runs Quirks and Quirks, got rid of theirs many years ago. And now just their article or their uh, tweets are just just a hellscape. Yeah. And um, uh be interesting just to, you know, and did that improve things or make things worse of just... And the I one suspect hand, it made it worse. Getting rid of the vitriol or just allowing the echo chambers of various, you know, of the various sides of every potential issue just talk amongst themselves as a, I don't know. It just also has more people weighed in. You know, there lots of people comment on, commented on newspaper articles. Everyone who's looking at them is on Twitter. So we'll, we'll chime in with their 280 characters of uh, opinion. But, uh, but that... That is the world we live in. Yeah, that's it. And uh, so, yeah, so going forward, um, you know, paleo-limnology has to be able to, you know, to reach the masses has to be able to uh, fit into bite-sized characters in many ways. Or, you know, if not the individual scientists doing it themselves, you know, have the Influers, highly active social people, you know, like, because if you don't do it, someone else will do it for you on some level. Um, And, you know, that is a challenge. Can a lot of these topics be distilled into a sentence and still get the point across? I think they can. And, uh, but with practice and not every topic is as easy. Uh, And probably the best way to do that is with memes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you threw me for a curve there. You're looking so serious. Then, well, in that case, that kind of uh, ties us in. Just we'll wrap it up here, unless you got something else you want to say. Because nope. uh, basically, send us your memes. Yep. We're all about paleo limno memes if they exist. Thanks um, again to Roberto Quinlan for starting this and tagging 
the core ideas podcast in a, a thread. Adam waved it in. I didn't get to any paleo limno memes, but I plan on coming up with a few myself. Uh, and I love them so much. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that is, I guess, uh, you know, the future of civilized discussion. Just meme, meme trading. Yep. Adding different words to pictures of cats or whatever. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening to this <laughs> very well-researched uh, discussion about paleolimnology as it's represented in the popular media. Um, and as always, uh, we're interested in any and all feedback, uh, no matter how vitriolic. Um, you can email us at coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. You can catch us on Twitter at coreideaspaleo. Our website is at coreideas.ajezorski.ca, A-J-E-Z-I-O-R-S-K-I. Show notes are there. All the episodes are there. Links to things like the Google Ngram viewer um, will be posted up in the show notes. Yeah, so play around with that. Yeah. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the podcast. It's been uh, fun just... uh, Yeah, it's fun every now and then just to... have a little chat about different things and go on tangents Uh, maybe not to listen to but i've enjoyed talking through it so so thank you once again and we'll catch you next time uh here here with us on core ideas yep take care see you soon